Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We're going to look at 1 Peter uh, 3, 8 through 17 this morning. But before we move on to that, I want to give a couple thoughts of recapping what David's been talking about over the last few weeks and just some general thoughts on First Peter myself. I don't know about y'all, but this is the first time in any church that I've been to or been a part of that First Peter has been preached all the way through um, and very specific. I, I think there's some reasons for that. One, location in the Bible. Secondly, uh, it's really uncomfortable. Uh, there's a lot of hard things in there. It's not one of those books that makes you feel warm and fuzzy when you leave and want to come back the next week. And so I think it's been one of those books that's overshadowed quite a bit. But there's so much in this, uh, so much truth in this and so, stuff that I really enjoy uh, that I've learned over the last few weeks listening to, listening to David speak. But David's focus has been this idea of elect exiles, people who are chosen to follow Jesus who are in a place that is temporarily where they exist, but not their permanent home. And as they walk through that, it's, it, it relates to the audience really well, who are first century Christians living in Turkey um, and just being persecuted. The Roman Empire is persecuting them. We know from David explained to us in the, in the 60s AD is when Nero's persecutions will happen and thousands and thousands of Christians will, will die simply for, for being Christian. And that will continue on for the next couple hundred years where we see Christian persecution. And I think... That's why Peter so specifically and directly goes after this idea of suffering. Peter mentions suffering 18 times in this short book in some phase, some way, some form. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about the suffering of following, suffering what it would be like. And, and what he's trying to do, I think, in an overall holistic sense, is he's trying to take these first century believers from a place of looking at the immediate danger that is in front of them and trying to give them an eternal perspective on what's happening to them and to the people that they love. I think that's why in 1 Peter 1.6, Peter describes this persecution as, as lasting only a little while. Because he wants his audience to understand your life is only a little while in comparison to eternity. And so he's trying to give this broad view of what God's doing. And then he, he, he spends four chapters telling us about the suffering and how we're supposed to respond to one another and how we're supposed to sacrifice. And it seems like one of those books, if you read it all the way through, that you come out depressed with. But the good news is, keep coming, because you get to chapter five, he tells us, he starts to describe for us, or it tells us about indescribable joy of, of Christ's redemption. So he doesn't just leave us in this place of, you're going to suffer, you're going to suffer. He says, the redemption, knowing the redemption of Christ is indescribable joy and grace to those who are redeemed. And so I want you to, to stay with me that because I think this message is more relevant today maybe than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Because as society is changing, it's becoming more secularized. It's becoming, maybe we're at that point, I don't know if we're at that spot yet where we were post-Christian, but I do think it's becoming harder and harder to be a Christian actively pursuing Jesus in the culture that we currently live in. The culture is less hospitable to the church than it's ever been. And, and you can get canceled, which doesn't matter to me, it might matter to some of you at any time for speaking truth out. So as society changes, what I think is, is suffering, 
will be a mark of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I also believe that our willingness to suffer for the gospel, our acceptance of that, shows that we are people who have, following Jesus, we've turned away from sin and we've turned away from the world. Not in the sense that we've turned our back on the world, but that we've turned away from what the world promotes, what the world says is good, what the world says is right, and what the world says is a path, to focus on what is the path. Not the easy path, the only path. And I think 1 Peter, or my goal anyway, with looking at 1 Peter this morning, is that when we finish this book, and however many weeks that will be, that we walk away from it encouraged, inspired, and excited to step into a place of active pursuit of Jesus outside of the church doors. I'm an evangelist by nature, I love to share, and, I, and I, my, the students, they roll their eyes every time because they know the answer to every question is to share the gospel. They just kind of, they're on autopilot, they hear it so often. But I think that's what happens whenever we start actively pursuing them. I think it might be something that just naturally starts to come out of us. It may just happen, I don't think it's something we have to think about. But forgive me, that's a long-winded recap and thoughts on it. We're not gonna talk about any of that today. Um, so forgive me for that. Let's look at the passage this morning in 1 Peter. We're gonna start in verse eight. I'm gonna read just verse eight to start and we'll chop it up a little bit. So first it says this, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. It's a reason we're only reading one verse to start. There's a lot in that. There's five adjectives here that Peter is using to describe how the church body, how the body of Christ, the church itself, should interact with one another. And it should read something like this. As you read it, if you read it like literally, it should say, you should be like-minded, you should be sympathetic, you should be loving one another like brothers, you should be compassionate, and you should be humble. It's not a suggestion like you, you might want to think about these things. There's this imperative tone in Peter's, in Peter's writing that says, you should be these things. It's not a voluntary thing. It's just this is what it looks like to be a Christian and interact with one another. So let's start with being like-minded. Your Bible may say harmonious. Be in agreement on primary issues of our faith is what he's saying here. Now, there, there's room for disagreement on secondary things, but primarily, Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross. Three days later, he rose again. He came back, and in and, and 40 days, he appeared to disciples. He left on the 40th day. He sent us his Holy Spirit, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Those are non-negotiables to the faith, right? Those are primary parts of it. And what he's saying here, when it comes to this, be like-minded, be harmonious. We're in agreement with this. I think he would say some of the secondary issues, it's okay to have fun discussion around it, but they're not primary. They're not central to, what we, to, to, to our salvation. They may be central to acknowledging our faith, but they're not, they're not the things that save us. And so I think what he's saying here, be harmonious, be in agreement, be sympathetic, deeply care. That's self-explanatory. Love one another. Your Bible might say brotherly love. Peter was very much interested in the family of God idea. 
that we are all brothers and sisters, that we are sons and daughters of the king, but we're brothers and sisters together. And so we should love one another like we love our brothers and sisters. The fourth adjective is be compassionate. And lastly, humble. Consider others before ourselves. I think this is written out in a way to connect. You can see it up there on the screen behind me. There's this connection that exists between like-mindedness and humility. If we're, in like, if we're at a like-minded place, but yet we have to be right, we have to be self-assertive, we're not gonna be humble. We have to get to this place where in humility that we, we are like-minded, we're in agreement because pride will destroy both like-mindedness and humility all the time. Be sympathetic and compassionate. Those two are linked because actually in our language are pretty much the same thing for the most part, right? We kind of, we can use them as synonyms. They're not, but we use them as synonyms a lot of time of being compassionate and being sympathetic. And those are important as well. But the primary, most important part of these, four, of these five adjectives that start are centered around loving one another. Love one another in the church. Love people. I told this story a few years ago when I was speaking at a church I grew up in in Kentucky. There is a first Baptist, a second Baptist, and a third Baptist church in this small town I grew up in in Kentucky, and they all three split over the carpet color. <laughs> it seems like these things would be, un, it seems like these should be self-explanatory to know these things, but Peter's making a point to mention them because dissension and division have been something that have plagued the church since the beginning. We find small, secondary, or tertiary reasons to separate ourselves and divide ourselves from one another over things that aren't the primal part of what we believe. And so Peter is speaking to us about unity in the body. And then he switches in verse nine. In verse nine, it starts to look like treat people in the body this way, but also treat people outside of the body the same way. It says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because of this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears are attentive to their prayer. But the, Lord, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Basically, Peter is saying, you know, all the things that everybody else is, don't be like that. Right? Humility is not something that's valued in the Roman Empire uh, during this time period. Repaying evil with good, not a thing. It's like Roman culture was to be ruthlessly successful at whatever cost and whoever you had to hurt and then flaunt the fact that you hurt people to do it. That's Roman culture. And so Peter's telling us, be different than them. And at first it's like, that's, this is easy, but I started thinking about it, and this is not to the same extreme, but I've had moments where I have repaid, not necessarily evil, but what I would call, we'll just say stupidity with with evil, right? Y'all ever, ever come this way from Stylesboro Road onto Old 41? Yeah? That merge line, drop, there's a big sign that says, keep moving, right there. And everybody stops, and I'm late every morning. And I lose my mind in my car. I love, like, I repay them stopping and not keep moving by getting up there, cutting somebody off, and then putting the window down and pointing to the sign that says, keep moving. 
not a great example of doing kind things to people. But it's so frustrating every morning sitting there. It's like, keep moving. We, can, like, we don't have to sit in traffic if you'll just look at the sign. But I do it and I get frustrated. And I'm like, oh man, I hope that wasn't somebody that goes to the church that I just yelled at. Um, but it's, it's that, that's a simple and it's a silly example, but it's also a true example that we probably fight through in some way or form every day. You may not be put, putting the window down pointing at a sign, but it may be internal. It may be a frustration that exists for you that you respond to in a way that doesn't point to Jesus. And that's what, that's what Peter is saying here, right? Rarely do we have people who are blatantly evil to us, but a lot of times we have people that can get, um, we just see them do things and we get frustrated by it, right? And when we do that, it causes us to respond in a way, we repay their annoyance with our own annoyance and it creates conflict instead of understanding that we're showing them Jesus. And that's just one example of what it looks like to repay evil with good. But Peter doubles down on the analogy because he wants them to understand that this is the plan from the beginning. This is the way God has set this up since the start. And so he gives us a paraphrase of Psalm 34. I'm not gonna go through the whole Psalm this morning, but there's four parts to the Psalm that I think that Peter is explaining to us here. He's telling us these four parts. One, God's people have always suffered because they're set apart. They're different from the world. There's this suffering of God's people and God will ultimately deliver us from this suffering that exists. If you look at, he you know, talks about in the Exodus, this deliverance from Egypt, right? We get deliverance from, from Babylon in, in, in the, um, the exile. And then the ultimate deliverance that God provides for us is Jesus. Psalm 34 goes on to talk about judgment of wicked people. We don't have to repay evil with evil. We repay evil with good because God judges the wicked, not us. And then finally, godly life is evidence of hoping in God. I wanna stay there just for a minute. This idea of hoping in God really, really spoke to me because I think we get the hoping, I think we get the word hope wrong a lot of the times. I think a lot of times for us, hope is something that we see is impossible, that we want it to happen, but we're pretty confident it's not gonna happen, right? Example, I filled out my bracket with Kentucky winning the national championship this year. I hoped they would win. I was pretty confident they weren't going to, but I hoped they would win, and so there's this hope there and something that's basically impossible this year. That's not biblical hope. I think David defined it a few weeks ago. Biblical hope is a confident expectation. So we read it this way. Can you put that back up there for me, please? Godly life is evidence of a confident expectation in God. God's gonna deliver us. God's gonna, God knows we suffer. He's gonna deliver us. He's gonna judge the wicked. And so because of that, we don't have to respond the way that wicked people might respond because God is the one that's gonna do that and he's gonna do that perfectly for us. Verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what, what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks ask you to give the reason for hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, 
so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed for their slander. For it is better if, God's, it's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Two points. Well, first, back up. Two questions I get asked every year from our students. It kind of rotates through. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why is God making me go through this? Or why is God making my friend go through this? Two questions. Every year, it comes up, different class. Every year, this question comes up. And what I've realized is, is Peter has the answer here. Good people are going to suffer from a worldly perspective. When we suffer for doing good, we're actually blessed. That word there is the same word used in the Beatitudes when he said, blessed are the, are the meek. Those who suffer for God's righteousness for doing good are blessed. It's a mark of the Holy Spirit in our life. It's the mark of our commitment to God. It's the mark of, the, of, of us pursuing him in an active relationship. So suffering is an indication of God's blessing. So, therefore, if you wanna use that word, do not fear. Do not fear the suffering that we go through because God says they can't hurt us. We can't be hurt. Now, we can, we can die for sure. We can suffer physical injury for sure. But what Peter's telling these people who are risking their life every day to follow Jesus was all they can do is kill you. You're gonna be in heaven. That's the eternal perspective. All they can do is hurt these people, they cannot destroy their soul, and that's the most important thing. So do not fear, they ultimately can't hurt us. I told you from the start, not the most encouraging of messages from Peter, but I think a very helpful one. So I think Peter, what Peter is doing here is he's calling us from a, from a passive participation in Christianity and in our faith, into an active engagement in relationship and with our community. See, passivity of our faith is this obligation Christianity where I show up what I'm supposed to show up, I do what I'm supposed to do, I check all the boxes out of obligation and then I check out on relationship. When I first started working here, the first three years, it was, it, it's still awesome, but it was awesome because Sunday through Thursday, I had the opportunity to pray, to worship, to read my Bible, to study, to spend all this time. It was awesome. I was growing, felt great. As soon as I got off work on Thursday, I took Friday and Saturday off from relationship in Jesus. My relationship centered around my work life. Here I am, and so as soon as I'm off work, then I'm off of relationship with Jesus, and so I would go home, and I wouldn't think about him on Friday or Saturday. I didn't pray, I didn't read, I didn't worship. I didn't do any of the things that I was doing Sunday through Thursday as a part of my job because I'd already checked that box. I had compartmentalized my Christian faith to my work life, and it's partly my fault you may be doing some of the same things of like compartmentalizing it's Sunday or it's small group or it's this time when I'm leading something. And I think one of the problems that we've run into as a, as a society of Americans is the First Amendment has been pounded in our head so much, right? Separation of church and state. It doesn't even say that, but separation of church and state. 
We think through that. We learn that when we're in elementary school. We learn it when we're in high school. We have to watch that silly little, those of you who are obviously as old as I am, had to watch that what is a bill thing when you were coming through school, right? We get that ingrained in our brain that we had this separation of church and state and we know this to be a virtue politically and we've taken it and we've adopted it personally. We have this separation of church and life personally. We divide out the sacred and the secular. Our work life is secular. I don't involve Jesus in this. My school life is secular. I don't involve Jesus in this. I involve him in the things that have to do with him, but I compartmentalize other areas of my life and I separate myself from him because I have this internal separation of church and state that I'm living in and I I have areas that Jesus has access to and there are areas that I want him to stay out of. And what's been indoctrinated into us. I was a, teach, a history teacher forever. We talked about it for a long time. Separation. You can't talk about this or that when we're at school. You can't talk. And we, we apply it. But active Christianity, active relationship with him is the merger of the secular and the sacred. There is no separation in Christ. It is unity of belief, of faith, of life. Work is not something that I check out and take off of God to go do. Work is where I bring God into a new element, a new place. It's where I get to tell people why I have reason for hope. School is a place I get to tell people why I have reason for hope. Neighborhoods, interaction with people, it's an opportunity to express the reason for hope and that is Jesus Christ crucified and raised again sitting at the right hand of the Father. We have hope, this confident expectation in God because he made a way for us and so we have a responsibility to share it. Internally, it looks like being like-minded, compassionate, sympathetic, loving one another and humble. Externally, outside the church walls, it looks the same with this caveat of the reason I do this is because Jesus makes a way for me to do it with you. We have a reason for hope, and the reason for hope is Jesus, and you pass people daily who are walking around dead that Jesus wants to make alive. I wanna encourage all of you to actively pursue relationships so you can actively engage others. I'm talking about movement makers, right? In Stonebridge language, we call it doing your deal. You all have good works that God's called you to do. And there's that, those are the ways that we get to share the gospel. But the fact that we share the gospel is an imperative command from Jesus throughout scripture. Look at the Great Commission. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Because he's with us to the very end of the age. There's this responsibility in active relationship. Passive means I fulfill the obligation. This is not a salvation discussion this morning. We're saved by grace and grace alone, but there's responsibility that comes with that salvation to actively pursue those around us, not pursue the things that the world says is important, but to pursue the hearts. What we actively pursue is what we love most. And unfortunately, in our world, in our country, in our community, the things that we love most are success and wealth and entertainment and and those things instead of Jesus. When we actively love him most, he's what we talk about most. 
He's what we share most. He's what we engage with others the most about. So we're gonna close. I'm gonna go over my time this morning, sorry. I do wanna close with a couple thoughts. Active Christians are Christians that are doing their deal. They're movement makers. And when you hear movement, don't hear how I get the most likes in social media. I'm not talking about moving mountains and making this big international splash. I'm talking about picking up rocks. I'm talking about the small things. It's the small things that get build momentum and create the big things. If you're familiar with that revival that happened in Asbury, it happened through a young man confessing something and then God took it and it became a movement and a revival. But it started with a simple act of confession. The small things, not the impossible things. You look at the impossible things, you're like, I can't do that, that's not me. You're right, that's Jesus. Do the small thing, do the next thing. Be obedient and do what God's called you to do. And whatever that is, discern that from the Lord. That's between you and the Lord to work out. But I just wanna just, it's something that I'm so passionate about, guys. Moving from being passive observers of what Jesus is doing to active participants in the mission that all of us are called on. Bo, if you come on back up here, please, ministry teams, if you'll come forward. We're gonna, we're gonna close with this. We're gonna pray this morning. Um, first, for those of you who don't know Jesus, it's not an easy path, but it is the best path, and I wanna encourage you this morning to make a decision to follow him. Secondly, I wanna pray for those of you who are sitting there and you're like, I feel like I'm sitting in this place of being passive, and maybe you're uncomfortable about it. I hope you're uncomfortable about it. Come and let these guys pray for you to move you into that activity place. Put aside the comfort comfort of passivity and pick up the uncomfort, the discomfort of activity. That's That's our version of suffering. Nobody's killing us for following Jesus. Our version of suffering is to be uncomfortable. And so let us pray for you that you move. And maybe you're in that active place and you're just, I don't know what's next. If that's you, let us pray. God will speak to you. Here's what the next thing is in the movement. Here's the next rock that needs to be picked up. Let's pray. Minister teams, if y'all come on up. Jesus, we thank you that as you call us into this action, you don't call us to do it in our own strength and you don't call us to do it in our own power. You're so good, Lord, that you give us the Holy Spirit to empower us to accomplish the things that you want us to do. And so God, we're thankful that you accomplish those in us and we don't have to go it alone. God, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you, that they would hear your voice calling them now. I pray for those who feel like they've been on the sidelines watching a game as part of their faith, that they would, they would learn what it is to be an active participant. They would be a player in the game, God. And I pray that you would draw them forward to engage you this morning. And God, I do pray for those who are they're ready. They're on fire. They're ready to go. They just don't know what's next. I pray that you give them clear discernment on what the next thing is, God. We pray that you would just speak to their heart. You would show them whatever breaks their heart. That's the place that you want them to go, God. So I pray that you would give them eyes to see where you want them to go and what their calling is. Show them the next rock, Lord, that needs to be picked up. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 